Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, Almost Sideways Podcast, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, you are in store for a special podcast ahead. Uh, as always, I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me uh, are my co-hosts, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Todd, if you had just found out that you are going to be making $330 million over the next 13 years, what would you be doing right now? Uh... Not what I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Zach, how ridiculous is Bryce Harper's contract? Uh, well, I mean, is it is it more ridiculous than Manny Machado going to San Diego? At least it's warm weather there, I guess. But it's true. I I, th- I think it make, it makes great sense, but dude, thirteen years, three hundred thirty million—that's just. Is that the biggest contract in history? I can't biggest think of contract 13 in years. sports history. Like North, I know North hockey, American sports. I yeah. know hockey will sometimes have those like ten year deals, but I've never heard of thirteen years. That's crazy. So so Giancarlo Stanton had a had a uh, had a contract uh, extension of thirteen years, three twenty five a couple years ago before the Marlins traded him. Uh, that was the uh, that was the biggest until this. So yeah, it's insane. He's going to be signed through twenty thirty one with the Phillies. So Full- when's when's the over under on when this deal becomes an, a, a catastrophe? Year and a half, maybe two years. I don't know. I, I'd years? give it. I, I'd say because this is going to end badly. We know that. Well, yeah, all these contracts do. But the thing is, he's twenty six. I mean, he's only signed through thirty nine. It's not like. The Mariners signing Cano at 31 for 10 years. He's going to be making $24 million when he's 41 years old. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. However, I will say, I think my favorite stat on it was uh, that Bryce Harper will be done getting paid in 2031, which is four years earlier than the Mets will stop paying Bobby Bonilla. Because his last paycheck from the Mets will be 2035. That's, That's an amazing stat. <laughs> The Mets are so good at organizing. Yeah. Well, apparently the Nationals' uh, offer to him was going to be um, $100 million was going to be deferred, and he was going to be paid by the Nationals till he was 60. But he didn't want any deferred money. Anyways, we're, we're on a tangent already here. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for listening to us. Uh, that should be the, the last of the sports talk for the day. Um, if you found us on iTunes, please make sure you subscribe, rate, review, uh, and uh, and uh, let other people know about us however you can. Find us at almostsideways.com, our Facebook page. Find some of us on Twitter. Uh, let's get started. First off, Zach, what are you drinking? I am drinking some excellent Marsala fine uh, something imported from Italy, made by a brand called Colombo. I think I've had this on the podcast before, and it usually doesn't lead to good results, which is why I'm having it again. (laughs) Imported from Italy. Yes. Colombo. Yes, because if I'm going to be a pretentious douchebag, I'm going to do it on this podcast. Let's do it. (laughs) 
Uh, Todd, what are you drinking? I am drinking some uh, Three Howls Blood Orange flavored vodka. I don't normally like vodka, but this oh, is a Seattle brand, vodka. and uh, it doesn't have a vodka burn. It just kind of has a citrus burn, so it's actually pretty good. Nice. And Blood nice. Orange makes me think of Dexter, so. There you go. There you go. Uh, I am I am drinking, so it's funny, you're drinking a Seattle, uh, a Seattle vodka, and for one of the first times, I'm not drinking an Oregon beer. Uh, I am. I went through, considering the topic of the day. Really, I should be drinking Heineken, but I, I didn't. I missed that. Uh, but uh, I, I considered it when I got this. Uh, this is out of Spatzel Brewery in Shiner, Texas. This is their Shiner Bach. As we're about to talk about rock, this is the Shiner Bach. So it's close enough. So that's what I'm going with. Yeah, Heineken would have been better. Yeah, yeah. it would have been. Especially it, however, the whole case. Yeah, exactly. It does say on the top, serve cold and often. So I bet I, I like that tagline. So, uh, so yeah, cheers. Cheers. All right. So before we get into our topic of the day, we've spent a lot of time uh, on this podcast over the last couple months discussing the Oscars. Uh, we had the Oscars last weekend. And I know we've got some pretty uh, some pretty great reactions to what happened there. Uh, Zach, I'm gonna start with you. Uh, give me your uh, your takeaways, uh, your favorite thing about the Oscars, and uh, your least favorite thing. Uh, well, uh, gosh, you know the Oscars just have a way of you know they think you think you've left it, then they suck you back in. It's a horrible, vicious trap. You know, for the first two hours and fifty minutes of that ceremony, it was an awesome Oscars. It was awesome seeing uh, Ruth Carter and Hannah Beachler win for Black Panther. It was the the upset of Olivia Coleman over Glenn Close was great. That was such a great upset that I actually felt bad for Glenn Close after you know just totally. Sh- on her this whole podcast um <laughs> it was a great ceremony and then uh catastrophe struck and uh you know i was appropriately apoplectic like everyone else and i couldn't believe what i was seeing even julia roberts was disgusted reading it and you know what it's just like it's just like russell's girlfriend i'm not going to say the name of the movie it, it doesn't have a name it was a horrible event when it happened and uh yeah screw the oscars okay why do we do this? Why do we talk about this? They just break our hearts, man, every time. I know you don't think so, Terry, because you like the movie in question. But I did like yeah. the movie. Uh. Todd, what are your thoughts? Need more alcohol. <laughs> uh, well, my least favorite part was when I heard the day after that uh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody was 20 to 1 to have the most Oscar wins, and I actually predicted all of those wins and for it to have the most wins in our Oscar challenge. So 20 to 1 would have been pretty legit. Uh, which I, Terry and I actually tied for the lead in that Oscar challenge, which is bizarre. That was Terry's best yeah, performance yeah. ever. Yes, it was. I was actually in like 200th place on Gold Derby out of like 36,000. So there's that. Wow. And then the other thing, the one thing I noticed is like how exactly like 2005 it was. In this case, like Black mm-hmm. Panther was King Kong and uh, uh, obviously... Uh, Roma was Brokeback Mountain, Green Book was Crash, and then uh, Bohemian Rhapsody was Memoirs of a Geisha. In 2005, all of them ended up with... What? Maybe Capote, too, a little bit. Well, in in that year, all all four of those movies ended up with three wins. 
And that was the most. This year, there were three movies with three wins, one movie with four wins. It was just like that, and it was the same sort of dynamic when Best Picture was announced, and with the foreign director winning Best Director, and it was, I don't know. No 3-6 Mafia, though. Yeah, there's no 3-6 Mafia. That was too bad. That's true. That's true. Oh, everything's always better with 3-6 Mafia. And Jon Stewart hosting. And Jon Stewart hosting. Which gets to one of my... I, I did not like not having a host. I hated how they tried to oh, I, to streamline it. I totally disagree. No host ever. We're done with hosts. I loved it. It was great. Let's just get to the awards. We don't need we don't need the segments where they go to the audience across the street. We don't need that. Yeah. See, I that yes that that's a gimmick that the last couple hosts have done, and I I don't care as much about that. But I I hated how they how they streamlined the whole thing and. Uh, I love how in the past the Oscars are not only celebrating this year, but also celebrating film in general, and how they would uh, they would show some of those uh, some of those films and tributes to different uh, different genres of film, and this was just I mean why not just have a press conference why why do the whole thing there was nothing to it and especially starting off the night with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Maya Rudolph showing how great they would have been as the hosts. And then saying, "Oh, but we're just presenting an award, and you're never going to see us again." I thought that was that was just kind of a slap in the face on this is what it could have been, but we decided to save time, and it still ran what like 20, 25 minutes over. I uh, yeah, I thought that was that was bad. Uh, with the with the win of Green Book as Best Picture, I didn't think it was as egregious. Um, I've 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 heard your uh, your protests of it, Zach, and uh, and I think you're you're a little over the top on it. Well, of course I, I am. Yeah, that's you, what of course you do you with are. the Oscars. I call but, Birdman the worst movie ever to win an Oscar too. That's you know? true. You, you you kind of say that about every Best Picture winner. Now that I think about it, that's true. <laughs> you hate every Best Picture winner. I will say I was the only one of the four of us to actually select Green Book as Best Picture. I knew that that was what was going to pull out. Um, but uh, no, I, I I agree. Olivia Coleman winning that was like one of the moments of the night right there. That was absolutely incredible. Um, and one thing that I thought was interesting, there was all the hubbub about making sure that all the songs were uh, were played and represented. And what happened you know to Kendrick Lamar? Yeah, what happened to Kendrick Lamar? I mean, he he was one of the ones that they wanted to make sure was there. And, and then he didn't even get up and sing. That he wasn't going to be able to be there because he had some tour or something. I think. That that's ridiculous. So yeah, I thought that was disappointing. I thought but... the moment of the night was Spike Lee's win, and I know Kevin Wilmot didn't get to say anything. I still think he would have thanked me had he get, been given a chance to speak. But hey, man, when Spike Lee won, that's the way you're supposed to win an Oscar, okay? You are supposed to leap into the presenter's arms, okay? You are supposed to be pumped up and you know talk about uh, fascist uh, leaders in the White House and uh, you know ha- exclaim profanities. That is the way you were supposed to win an Oscar, okay? That was the moment of the night for me. I, I I'm looking forward to the to the moment when like Dwayne Johnson wins an Oscar and it's presented by like Anna Kendrick and he jumps into her arms. That'll be <laughs> that that'll that'll be pretty great right there. What was up uh, with like uh, the presenters of the acting awards? Like they they paired the winners from last year into the lead award lead categories. I thought that was kind of weird. I didn't like. Yeah, that, that was weird much. too. That was weird too. Uh, I would say probably my favorite thing of the night, and it's something I heard afterwards, uh, and I don't know if this has ever happened before, but um, all eight Best Picture 
nominees won an Oscar. I, how how crazy is that? That that everything was split so much that all eight Best Picture nominees won an Oscar, at least one. Yeah, like they don't usually uh, try to spread it around that much. Like I mean, they they easily could have done that in like two thousand nine and given Up in the Air Best Adapted Screenplay, but then they went with Precious instead. So that went you know with nothing. And last year with Lady Bird, that ended up with nothing when that they easily could have split it up. But yeah, they don't. It doesn't usually work like that. Well, when there's, there, when there's that much parody and there's that much competition, you know, it's like the 2016 Republican nomination, you know, it ends up being just the worst one comes oh, out. So that's what happened. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll shut up. You gotta remember, you loved Crash back in 2005. So. Hey, we're not talking about that. That is not okay <laughs> I think to bring you up. really should, because you, you and Roger, like, loved that movie. That was a pre-2016 world, man, and I don't know what you're talking about. That was a different reality. You know, shut Ro- up. You know shut Roger it's like the affair with Brenda. Shut up. We're not going to talk about it. Shut up. Roger would have loved Green Book. He would have loved Green Book. Oh, he would have and- loved everything. He gave everything four stars. He gave Shame four stars. He gave uh, Hugo four stars. He gave Incredibly Loud and Extremely Close four stars. He would have give- given Crazy Stupid Asians four stars. But... Roger's not alive. We're in a post-Roger world, and that was a disgrace. <laughs> and you're right. Roger would have named Green Book his number one of the year, but that's not the point. <laughs> and and if he would have, it would have been in your top ten. I guarantee it. Not necessarily. Oh <laughs> uh, well. Uh, before we move on from uh, from Oscar talk, uh, just to wrap up, one last thing. Uh, we had our Oscar challenge on the last uh, over the last month or so leading up to the Oscars, and I we have our final results. I was updating this live. I heard uh, Todd and Adam and Ben on the uh, on the Adam Daily live stream, uh, and and Zach for like five minutes before he bailed. Um, they they were upset that I wasn't doing the whole uh, the whole thing. I didn't have the time to do all that. Uh, kind of had a kid born that uh, that weekend, but uh, I was able to do a little bit of updating. And uh, so in our, uh, our top five uh, on the Oscar challenge, I'll go through this quick. So in fifth place with 14 out of 24 correct, we had a four-way tie of Zach, Adam, Paula, and Jay Vaders. Uh, in fourth place with 15 correct, we had a three-way tie between Ryan O'Toole, who was on the Adam Daily livestream, uh, Larry Chilson, and our buddy Kyle Heck. He did not win. He finished in fourth. That's amazing. Take that, Kyle. How did he not win? I know. He wins every year. All right. In third place, it was 16 correct. We had Keshav Batra. In second place was 17 correct, Brett Greer. And in first place with 18 out of 24, it was a three-way tie between me, Todd, and Max Dinenberg. Max. Unclear if any of those were hard knock, cold cocked, whatever his name is. Yeah, I don't know. I, I will say, I, I was texting Todd this, coming down to like the last four uh, awards, um, Todd and Max were tied for the lead, and I was tied with Brett, one behind. And I texted him, I said, it's all going to come down to what wins best picture. Because I was the only one that had green books, so I would have hopped up into a tie. And Brett had Black Klansman, so if Black Klansman had won, he would have been up in the tie, and Todd and Max both had Roma. So, uh... It, it it was really interesting watching that live and uh and uh I, I may have been uh celebrating the win not just because I think Green Book is a quality movie but because it it gave me the the victory or the the share of the victory in uh, the uh, Oscar challenge. I had a commanding lead after the three consecutive Bohemian Rhapsody wins that no one else had. 
I'm, yeah. I was upset that it, someone caught me. I had, I almost had it. I had the favorite winning editing. That was the one, one I had in there. I find it fascinating that the favorite, just to get the Oscar, it needed the Olivia Coleman upset. That was its one and only Oscar. I know. Um, yeah, the fact that that didn't win costumes is a little ridiculous. I know. I mean, uh, it's great that Black Panther won won as much as it did, but yeah, it, it was it was an unconventional choice for sure to have uh, the favorite win over uh, over Black Panther, or to have Black Panther win over the favorite. Anyways, okay, moving on from the Oscars because we are uh, really excited about what we're doing today. We are going to do something completely different. Like I said, this is a special episode of the Almost Sideways podcast, and uh, we're going to be doing what uh, I'm going to term uh, favorite features. Uh, We're going to go through and spend an entire podcast talking about one of our all-time favorite movies and uh, and talk about all things with it, all things things about it, and kind of really talk about it to the point that we're sick of talking about it, I'm sure. So the, the movie of the day today is Almost Famous... Uh, the wonderful 2000 film uh, written and directed by Cameron Crowe. Uh, Todd, I'm going to throw it to you first. Uh, what what do you love about Almost Famous? Uh, yeah. Well, to begin with, everything. Thank didn't, you. Didn't see that one coming. So, yeah, I kind of gave you a softball there. Yeah. Uh, well, the first time I ever watched Almost Famous, it was uh, on the completely commercially interrupted TNT uh, broadcast probably in like maybe 2005 and uh, after I watched it I went and bought the DVD and I watched it an additional six times over the next week like that's how much I was obsessed <laughs> with this movie at one point it, it immediately became my number one of all time until I eventually had watched The Deer Hunter so this movie it definitely holds a special place in my heart I used to watch it all the time I don't really anymore because I feel like I've seen it a ton and it's always on TV so I catch parts of it yeah, and I think one of those uh, six times over the next week, you forced me to sit down and watch it, and that was the first time I'd seen it. So, uh, and and I immediately became as obsessed. Well, maybe not quite as obsessed, but pretty obsessed with it as well. So, so wait, I kept... Todd, you saw you saw this movie before Terry did. Yeah. Wow. Yep, he introduced me that. to it. Yep. Interesting. So, so my history with this film precedes both of yours, which is interesting. Predates both of yours. I saw this movie on home video on video cassette in like spring of 2001 and the reason i remember that is it was the second r-rated movie that my parents let me watch the first r-rated movie i ever watched was shakespeare in love at least that my parents let me watch that they knew about and the second one was this movie and um i remember uh you know at that time ebert had had named it his number one movie of 2000 and it had several oscar nominations and i remember thinking that it was like a good movie but i didn't particularly love it and then i had a very interesting history with this movie because for many years i didn't like this movie um you know uh it was a movie that like i thought was just uh praised lavishly and i didn't really understand why because i thought it was really sentimental first of all it was not foreign and it didn't have uh, uh sadness in it or depression it was a very kind of upbeat happy movie where people hugged i hated that and um i really didn't like cameron crowe's movies overall although i was into say anything but not this movie and i don't know something about this movie changed for me like maybe around two, 2010 2011 i realized i'm sounding very self-serving in, in this little monologue but it's a long-winded way of saying that i don't love this movie uh the, the same way that you both love it it predates both of you though with this movie so i've lived with it longer than you have so so there i don't know what i'm saying I'm rambling. I'll stop. 
And it was it was after we decided to name our website Almost Sideways. So Almost Sideways is Almost Famous and Sideways. It was after we did that that you went back and watched it again and went, why did I hate this movie? This yeah, movie is amazing. Yeah. That's a great point. I hope listeners out there know that. I, I hope that listeners are, are, you know, now they realize that the name Almost Sideways comes from these two movies that collectively we love and obsess and talk about. So that's a very important distinction to make. And and it's also important to know that, yes, Zach sometimes admits that he's wrong. I, I was wrong about that movie. However, Ebert also loved it, so I was wrong in saying that I w- that Ebert was wrong in the first place. See, so. that that was the real problem. That's, is you that's had, the real problem. You had exactly. yet to learn that, uh, that you just need to go with Ebert's gut. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Uh, Todd, why don't you just... For anyone who hasn't seen it, you're going to be really bored throughout this, but uh, just give those that may have taken a while since they've seen this, give them a quick overview of the basic story of Almost Famous. Okay. Uh, This is sort of loosely based on the experience of the director Cameron Crowe's job as a writer for Rolling Stone when he was following around a band in the 60s, and so... The main character of this movie is William Miller, and he is a 15-year-old who is following around a band called Stillwater, uh, and uh, he meets uh, a lot of interesting people on the road, and he sort of is like this like brainiac kid, but he's missing a bunch of tests because he's like getting caught up in this world of rock and roll, and it's about his experience with the band and with uh, his uh, love interest, Penny Lane, and uh, his mother, who is constantly trying to get him to come back home and harbor his her 15-year-old son. All right. So, uh, let's see here. Who, who do we want to go to first? Zach, I know you've got a lot of stuff you want to talk about with this movie. Why don't you, yeah, why so, don't you get us so, started? So let's talk about a little bit of the format of how we want to do this podcast, okay? So what we've come up with is different categories because, God forbid, we go by this pod, we go an episode on this podcast without categorizing something insignificant, right? So we came up with several categories that we haven't necessarily told each other in advance, although some of them we've sort of fleshed out a little bit. And we're just going to go over things that we really like in this movie, things that stick out to us, because we've seen this movie so much that we can recite the lines uh, in our sleep, and we know these characters really well. And so we did revisit the film and it's just kind of fun to sort of rehash uh what makes this film so great and the elements that uh we think are are wonderful wonderful debatable um and i think we want to start with a classic almost sideways category that we've talked about on this podcast many times and that is the highest war performance that is the highest wins above replacement performance i think that is the place to start and there are so many great ones to choose from in this movie so I'm going to throw it back to you, Terry. Where, where do you fall on this one? Highest war performance. Um, so I, I just watched this movie again last night to prepare for this. Um, and I will say, and something else that will come up later on, uh, I watched the director's cut um, where uh, uh, the DVD version is called Untitled, which was the original title of the movie before it was almost famous. Um, I have the Blu-ray version, which is just called the Bootleg Edition. Um, and so, uh, yeah... Two hours and forty-one minutes of uh, almost famous, I I consumed last night, um, but uh, and I know Zach, you watched both to prepare for it, and Todd, you've seen the director's cut, but that's not the one you watched, correct? Correct. Okay, so talking about war, um, I would 
looking at these characters, I would say probably the highest war performance for me is Frances McDormand's uh, portrayal of Elaine, the mother. Um, I I don't know if I could see anyone else quite. I mean, it's it's Frances McDormand. Uh, she she leaves such an indelible stamp on every role that she uh, that she that she plays. And this one, I don't know if it would have anyone else could have come across as psychotic and endearing at the same time. <laughs> and so I I would have to say my highest war is Frances McDormand. I think she's the most irreplaceable. I completely disagree. I I think I don't think that move that role is that hard to replace. Like I mean, I honestly think. It probably could have been written for Annette Benning, especially around that time. It's the same character she plays in American Beauty. I, I don't, I don't see what, like, or Mary McDonald. I don't, what I don't know. I don't know about that. Well, it, I don't, I, I don't think I've never thought Francis McDormand was that special in this movie, honestly. But, wow, but she was the one that stood out the most to me. I'll just say that. But I don't know. I think I, I feel like Annette Benning could have easily played that character at that time. I don't think it's that hard to replace. Not quite like that. Or Glenn Close. Non-Oscar winner. Not Glenn Close. <laughs> well, okay, but that kind of actress, you know, a, a mature actress who can play, you know, a, a caring mother, but in a unique and original way. I mean, I think it's a really good performance, but we're talking about war. I mean, we're talking about, like, this is a role that could not be played by anyone else. And in this case, I would agree with Todd. I think it's, it, it is a somewhat bland uh, character, or not maybe bland, but it, it's, um, it, it can generate, I don't know, it, it, it's pretty open to uh, a lot of different types of, of character actors. And Frances McDormand's great in the movie. She, she deserves an Oscar nomination, whatever, but uh, I don't know about War. Todd, what do you think for highest War? Uh, well, I have a few options. I mean, there's obviously Philip Seymour Hoffman because it's impossible to replace him ever, really. But uh, I, I find I find Kate Hudson, <coughs> Kate Hudson's role as Penny Lane, like uh, about as uh, irreplaceable as they come. And then I also think, as in, in terms of smaller smaller roles, like Feruza Balk, I, I honestly could not picture anyone else playing. Sapphire. I always thought that she had like the most unique characterization of her characters anyway, and I, I think Sapphire is probably her best performance ever, and I, I can't really see anybody else doing it like that. And then Jimmy Fallon, too. I He's just so weird. I It'd be hard to see anyone else step into that role and make it just as energetic and, and uh, entertaining as he did. So a couple things. I did some deep dive on uh, on some IMDb trivia pages on this. Um, so you said Lester Bangs was fairly irreplaceable. Uh, several people that auditioned for Lester Bangs and didn't get the part were uh, John Favreau and Jack Black. Ooh! I actually could totally nice. see Jack Black being able to pull off Lester Bangs. He could pull it uh, off in a it very similar way. Been, it wouldn't, have been, it wouldn't have been. You're right. It wouldn't have been the same because it wouldn't have been. Uh, it wouldn't have been Philip Seymour Hoffman. But I mean, like. The scene in the in the record in the um, radio studio at the very beginning when we first meet him that that is that is Jack Black. I mean I that that would have like been perfect. Young. He would have been too young in two thousand, wouldn't he? Uh, I don't know. He just coming off of High Fidelity, right? Yeah, but I mean he's no, playing the year. editor of a newspaper or, or a magazine. Like I I feel like Jack Black would have been way too young at that time. I don't know. Anyways, and then uh, the other one. Uh, what was the last one you just mentioned? Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Will Forte was uh, auditioned for that role and uh, and lost out to Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, see, that wouldn't have been as 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 energetic. I don't think. I find it interesting that it's two SNL guys that uh, that were up for the role of of uh, of that character. Well, Zach, what what do you have for War? Well, what are you thinking? So, so wait, so Todd, you got to pick one though. It's got to be highest War. We're we're 
I'm, I'm gonna... It's between Frieza Balk and Kate Hudson. I guess I would just say Kate Hudson because it, like, it, it's a more significant role. Okay, that's a good choice. For me, it's unquestionable. It's it's one of the most obvious answers to any category we've come up with, and that is Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, this is the role that Philip Seymour Hoffman was born to play, right? Th- these bit roles. This is perfect, like late '90s, early 2000s PSH, where like he takes this bit role of this strange, sort of dysfunctional, world weary character, and just makes it the star of his scenes. Like any scene that he is in this movie, he dominates, and he is spectacular. And anytime he 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 goes off the camera like it, it doesn't feel quite the same the ener- the vibe the energy just kind of goes down just a little bit and uh you want to know so much more about this lester banks character and uh, he's awesome in the movie like i to me that no one else could play that jack black are you kidding me jack black would have been like a comic sort of folly character like lester banks has like this tinge of tragedy you're telling me that jack black could have co- done that phone conversation on the on the phone and talking about being cool like i, I think that was out of his range in 2000 but philip seymour hoffman absolutely destroys this movie and he should have gotten an Oscar nomination. I think I read uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was only on set for like four days, and he had the flu the entire time. Yeah, it's so perfect. To, to adds add, to his character. Yeah, it adds to his character completely that he felt like crap the entire time when he's a character that, you know, hates himself in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, he's just awesome, you know? And, like, the way he says, you know, well, I can't just, you know, keep talking to my many fans. I mean, no one, who else could say that? I think maybe, like, Paul Giamatti, possibly, but, like, I don't know. Who could show up in a Guess Who shirt and, you know, show up at the radio station and just, you know, like, start bashing on, uh, you know, Jim Morrison and rock music? I mean, that's just awesome, you know? That is the definition of a blowhard role. No one else could have played that. I, I, I just don't think so. It's not possible. Iggy Pop! Talking about how rock and roll is dead, but... William showed up for the last, the, the last gasp, the last grope. And I the love how he rattle. I love how rattle. he loves the guess who because like that's that's like the birth of like irony. You know, he's like the birth of the comic book guy on The Simpsons. Like because the guess who are so like lame and like out of date in 1970, but like he loves them. Of course he does. You know, that's just, and that's just his character. That's perfect. I love it. It's because he's uncool. Exactly. <laughs> So as we're talking about replacements, I have a couple others of uh, of who was actually who was originally intended to play some roles. So, um, well, I know so Brad Russell Pitt Hammond, was supposed to play Russell. Yeah, Brad Pitt was supposed to play Russell Hammond and uh, and dropped out because uh, uh, apparently he just didn't get it. He couldn't he couldn't figure out what it, what it was supposed to be. So he he dropped out, and Sarah Polly was supposed to be Penny. Um, and uh, and she dropped out for another movie. And Kate Hudson was originally cast to be Anita, the sister, and she was uh, she was bumped up to playing Penny Lane. So uh, I mean, I think any any one of those could have potentially worked. I think Sarah Polly would have been really interesting because she was coming off the Sweet Hereafter, and she was kind of like Gretchen Maul a little bit. She was like going to be the next big thing, and it never fully materialized in part because she kind of wandered into like indie films in the early two thousands. But I think she could have nailed that performance. I was actually just rewatching the Sweet Hereafter the other day. She's she's she was great great actress and you could see like a lot of potential and she could have nailed that role but um i don't know i don't know about brad pitt that's that's maybe the bigger question oh i told yeah. like i could i i could see how it was written for brad pitt a lot of the yeah time. like i mean when he's singing peggy sue on the on the airplane or something like that is yes. a brad pitt moment yes like, <laughs> yes that's like true romance brad pitt like early 90s brad pitt could have nailed a scene like that but see and... by p- post fight club brad pitt i don't know though maybe a little too polished at that point but so once Brad Pitt dropped out, uh, 
Billy Crudup beat out uh, Christian Bale for the role of uh, of Russell Hammond. I think Christian Bale would have been an interesting one too. Yeah, I could see. Well, that. why didn't Billy Crudup become a big star? That's one of the big questions that remain for me I after agree. this movie. Because, like, look, I mean, he was in. He was sort of like he was like a sort of like a Keanu Reeves in a way. Like he did a lot of indie movies in the late '90s. He was in like Waking the Dead, which is a pretty good movie. He's in Jesus's Son, which is I think one of the b- best indie uh, underrated movies of the late '90s. Also with Jack Black, he's really awesome in that movie. And like he didn't really do anything afterwards. And today he's now used as like a creepy, you know, psychotic character, like like his character in Spotlight. You know, like I don't know why he why, why didn't he materialize? What happened? I don't think he looks like a movie star. That's that's part of the problem. Oh, I don't know about that. He's he's a pretty good looking guy, you know. He's he's a pretty hot bucket of man sauce and almost famous, I gotta say. Well, and one thing that I find interesting is I think he is completely unrecognizable. Your looks have become a problem, Russell. <laughs> what? <laughs> but no, Sorry, I think Terry. I think he's unrecognizable. He doesn't look anything like he normally looks like in that. And even watching it last night, I'm like. Is how is this Billy Crudup? I just it, it's hard to see him in that. I think just the the hair and the mustache do such a good job at at just changing his look completely. I don't know. I guess. And then and then should we talk about Kate Hudson's career a little bit after this movie because that's even a bigger collapse. I mean, Kate Hudson is like I don't know, Anthony Bennett of the NBA. I mean, you know, number one in the draft, okay? She gets Oscar nominations. She should have won supporting actress for this movie. She's already Hollywood royalty because she's Goldie Hawn's daughter. And then her career implodes. I mean, we're talking Four Feathers, Raising Helen, Bride Wars, uh, Skeleton Key, just one disaster Well, Four Feathers another. is really the only movie with any sort of ambition that she ever did after that. And it was a complete flop, which is kind of strange to think about considering who was involved in that movie. But, I mean, she never got the opportunities to be a big a big time actress in Hollywood after that. She was just doing the, the romantic comedies. And she took the job in Four Feathers and turned down Spider-Man as oh. Mary Jane in order to do Four Feathers. That's that will kill a career. So the thing one of the things I remember about this movie at the Oscars in two thousands, maybe we can we can talk about that too, is mm-hmm. she her boyfriend at the time was the lead singer of Counting Crows. And I was always convinced for a while that that was the reason she lost. Because uh she was dating the lead singer of Counting Crows. And then she dated A-Rod. Not really a step up, if you ask me. Yeah, that That's an interesting combo there. <laughs> I don't know. I think yeah, she lost yeah. some Marsha Gay Harden because Marsha Gay Harden pretty much gave a lead performance and she was in the supporting category. That's what they did with both supporting categories that year. But still, Kate Hudson still should have won. I, I, I can't think... She was like my favorite supporting actress performance of that entire decade. I, I don't see how she couldn't have won that year. Okay, well, let's go to supporting actress that year, okay? Because this is one of the biggest travesties of this movie, is Marsha Gay Harden winning, okay? So that year, you have Marsha Gay Harden winning. Kate Hudson, by all 
you know, prognosticators should have won. I mean, all the analytics were saying she, had, she I feel like she had won, the, didn't she win the Golden Globe? She yeah. had won many of the precursors going up to the award season. This was a, this was a DreamWorks film. I mean, DreamWorks had just cashed in with, with American Beauty. So she lost out to a performance in a movie that I, I don't think a lot of people saw or took seriously. And I, I don't know what happened. What were Oscar voters thinking? It's one of the worst Oscar travesties of all time. Well, I guess it's good that Judy Dench won a couple years before because she probably would have won for Shock a lot if she had. Uh, that's a good point. Well, and it was also it was set up perfectly too. I mean, it, she was going to have this career that completely mirrored her mother. I mean, they both got their their breakout roles being nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the exact same age. Yeah. And then uh, and Goldie Hawn won, and and Kate Hudson didn't. When Goldie Hawn yeah. did the the trash romantic comedies her whole career, but she still got nominated for one of them. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> so I'm I'm looking at Kate Hudson's IMDb resume. There's really only one big hit after Almost Famous, and that's How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. And I feel like that's sort of a metaphor in some ways about the direction that she took her career. She didn't. It didn't seem like she did a lot of serious roles after. It, it was maybe as though like people had seen this movie and sort of understood like what her sort of quirks were as an as an actor, and maybe she was limited in that. But I mean, there is nothing uh, after this movie that is remotely award like worthy. You know, she. Did lay divorce the merchant ivory film but like that you know that was that was like a big ensemble cast and then later she did nine but like none of the none of those movies had the same kind of awards caliber that that uh, almost famous had so i don't know i don't know whether that was a conscious choice on her part or maybe she just uh i don't know maybe the the roles weren't there was almost famous really know. looked at it as a award movie at the time because it was released in september it will like made half of its budget back at the box office. I don't know. I, I wouldn't have thought that... I, I think this would have been like an underdog story at the Kim Awards time. But. Yeah, but it had, a, it had a lot of critical praise. I mean, not just Ebert, but it had a major studio backing. Cameron Crowe was fresh off Jerry Maguire. It was a big tentpole film. I mean, it had a big release. Yeah, this, is a, this was had to be a huge follow-up to, to Jerry Maguire, because Jerry Maguire was a huge smash hit. And then he, he comes off of that and pulls out this... Uh, this huge passion project of his that's you know, like Todd said at the beginning it's a it's semi-autobiographical of stuff that happened in his real life um I mean I guess if you're going to pull pull off something like this you do it after your biggest hit and it I think it hit bigger than Jerry Maguire did but uh but yeah let's maybe move on to another category what yeah. what, what do you guys have okay I've got one Let, let's uh let's look at it let's look at this um my category is uh, is best actors in a forgettable role that became something after this movie. Ooh, that's a great category. I, I came up with, I, I was watching the movie and I did a list here where I had one, two, three, twelve different actors who had everything from a little bit part to a, a semi-minor role that were no one knew anything about at the time but ended up becoming uh, a bigger deal later on um so uh i i'd, I'd say probably i mean i jimmy fallon would uh would fit into this uh i've got i've got 
I'll go with uh, Eric Stone Street. This was his nice. first movie. Uh, he was mm-hmm. the the concierge at the hotel that um that got had to feel the phone call from from William's mother, Elaine. She's, She's a, a handful. handful. She freaked me out. <laughs> and then in the director's cut, he finishes he finishes it up by saying, "Tell her to stop that." <laughs> I, I mean, it's one of the most the most memorable, just little like thirty second roles that you can come across. And now look at him now. I mean, he's this huge star from uh, from Modern Family. But I'm gonna go with Eric Stone Street. What about you guys? I've got some more, but I want to give you guys a chance to come up with some. Well, the one that would obviously fit for me would be uh, Mark Marin, who yes, I still yeah. can't really recognize him other than his voice. And I honest, I don't think I would have actually known it was him unless if he didn't like start his podcast with him saying "Lock the gates." Every <laughs> Yeah, he's one. Yeah, that... I had to look it up, because <laughs> I, I I didn't believe that he was in this movie, and then yeah, yeah, he he's awesome in that, and I also would, I mean, you got us Rain Wilson too. It's a puff piece. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good one too. Uh, Zach, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, there's so many you could go with. I I would go with maybe uh, Michael Angarongo, better known as the uh, young William Miller, because he's this been is, in so many yeah. great. I mean, we this bring is him why up we every... call him Young William Miller, by the way. He's, he's been he's been brought up. I feel like on every podcast, but since this movie, you know, he was on Twenty Four. He was in uh, you know Red State. He was in uh, uh, the Nick. Um, you know, he's been in a, a bunch of great movies. And Snow I Angels. remember reading Snow Angels. I remember reading that he actually was second. Um, he finished second in the audition to play young Anakin Skywalker. He lost out right at the very end. He would have been. Uh, he would awesome. have been so much better. <laughs> yes, he's awesome in this Gosh. movie. You could maybe make the case that he is the best William Miller in this movie. Ooh, I don't know. Patrick uh, you could maybe, is you could so maybe perfect. make the case. You could maybe make it. I don't know. He's he's so awesome in his scenes, though. I, I would say I I will say this. I think Patrick Fugit is one of those guys that who after he played this. He he couldn't. It ruined him for his career because he couldn't really play anything else. Right. And and he he's one that he's one kind of like Haley Joel Osment where he didn't really grow up to have the to have the looks he had as a kid necessarily. And so it wasn't going to work for him to be a leading man. Well, I think Fusion uh, was awkward enough anyway. That's that's sort of his charm, and th- and that's why he can yeah. still disappear into roles like Gone Girl and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. I don't know. Angarano definitely had a higher ceiling after after this movie. For sure. So uh, so some of the others I had on my list here. Um, the the most notable is Jay Baruchel, as a as the Led Zeppelin fanatic. Vic. He touched his pen. Robert Robert Plant touched his pen. Um, and uh, let's see here. Who else do I have on this list? One I didn't realize until just this last time watching it, and it was because I watched the director's cut. He had. One more line, and it was enough for me to notice it. Nick Swardson, uh, who's a, a big, uh, he's the Bowie freak, yeah. And and I, I would have. He's on screen in the re- original. He's on screen for like half a second as he screams Bowie, but he had one more line in the director's cut, and it was just enough for me to go, I know that face. And sure enough, uh, that's who it was. Polly Peretti. Most known as being Abby from NCIS is the DJ with uh, with Lester Bangs at the beginning. Um, 
You had uh, a, a little more notable. You had people like Zoe Deschanel and Anna Paquin playing minor roles that became. I mean, Anna Paquin at this point was already an Oscar winner, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, one that is only in the director's cut is uh, Kyle Gass from uh, Tenacious D. He is the DJ during their radio interview they go and do, who is high as a kite and falls asleep halfway through the interview. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, you had Peter Frampton, who is actually the uh, the manager music. for Humble Pie. Well, and Peter uh, Frampton was a was a music consultant on the set, right? Yeah, he was. He was, and he was he was the uh, the manager of Humble Pie that uh, that bought uh, the band aids for uh, for fifty bucks in a case of Heineken. And and the last one is one that I always recognize. I don't know who else does, but Owen Bailey is one of the the people at the Rolling Stone who uh, I recognize more as Webster from Band of Brothers. Uh, yeah. But anyways, he's the main guy. The main guy at the Rolling Stone. Yeah, yeah, he's the he's the producer. Yeah, uh, yeah, the editor. I yeah. like how Paul it's gonna be a cover. Pretty much says like it's it's too early in the morning for that when when he when he brings up the Iggy Pop record. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I made a connection with that and the fact that they both take place in San Diego, which I, that and Sideways obviously is what I'm talking about. I didn't really realize it's, that until now. <laughs> it's it says according to IMDb that uh, William Apother was also uh, had scenes that were deleted and of course he played Marissa uh, Tomei's ex husband in In the Bedroom. He would have been oh. an interesting addition. Uh, I, I believe he's the stepbrother of Tom Cruise. What, yes. what would he have been in this movie? Uh, bartender, but scenes were deleted. Oh. I don't remember any bars in this movie, but I, well, they well, called because it... it was deleted, wasn't it? Well, yeah. no, well they called the a bar what they were at down by the pool in in that one hotel because that that was when uh uh, sapphire's on the phone with uh uh, with elaine and and she says that he's uh william's still down in the bar with the band and then then they they, they pan down there and it's just like them out in like the courtyard of the the hotel and by a pool i'm like there's no bar there whatever So, so Todd, with with your last comment, I I think I think we may need to do at some point. We need to do a podcast on location in San Diego, since both these movies take place. I mean, they're both in the same yeah. city. Yeah, a city <laughs> that I was married in, and we were all there. Yeah, we should have done it. True. Then. <laughs> I know, I know. We need to do a re- we need to do a reunion in uh in San Diego at some point. We even had open bar. <laughs> we did. Okay, so so we keep on bringing up like deleted scenes, and we keep on bringing up directors, the director's cut. I think it's time we start talking about this a little bit because the director's cut adds forty minutes onto this movie, and um, I'll say for me, um, the director's cut is not as good as the original. However, as someone who is obsessed with this movie, the director's cut is so much fun to watch because you get so much more out of it. Um, Zach, you would just watch both of them. Uh, what do you think about the director's cut? Yeah, I, I would echo your sentiment, Terry. I don't think it's better than the movie. However, if you are fascinated by these characters on the verge of, on the point to like obsessing about them like we are, it's absolutely awesome to watch it. Um, I did feel like having watched the theatrical cut f- first, I do feel like that movie is just a little rushed. I feel like there are some scenes that kind of jump around a little bit. Like, for example, you know, they ditch they ditch Doris really quickly. They ditch the bus, and literally the next scene they're on the airplane, for example, you know? And, like, there's little stuff like that that the, that the director's cut um, kind of connects a little bit more. Now, this gets to a big issue, though, which is my biggest issue with the director's cut. I don't like the Stairway to Heaven. 
scene and that's that that is you know seven minutes of the 40 minutes right and the the reason why crow couldn't include that in the final cut is they couldn't get the rights to stairway to heaven and uh, to me it's just unnecessary i mean it's like an interesting scene. What's also noteworthy about that scene is that Cameron Crowe's mother is actually a teacher in that scene who is at the house doing the sort of intervention that they do for, for the Elaine character about uh, trying to convince her to let uh, young William Miller go on tour. But, like, it's just, I don't know, it's sort of overkill. What do you guys think about that? So, actually, my, my version did not have that scene. I think, it, I think it's listed as a deleted scene. Right, it's on, your, of it. it, it's, on, it's on the theatrical disc, and you have to play the music outside of the right, cut. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, so I, I actually didn't watch that. But that that's interesting. It's like an intervention to try and let, let William go. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's William and Daryl, if I remember. I haven't seen it in a long time. Isn't Daryl there too? <laughs> I believe so. And there's like, yeah, there's a bunch of teachers. Like, from, like one of them is like his journalism teacher. And they're like all there. And they just play Stairway to Heaven. And there's not a lot of talking during the scene. It's just really like the characters' reactions to the song. And it's like kind of cool, you know, but totally unnecessary. I mean, we, we really get the point. But there are other parts of the movie, though, where I do feel like having more depth into uh, the characters and having these extra moments might might pay off a little bit. So I guess you're right to distinguish the fact that that isn't necessarily in the untitled uh, cut. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I and I I made a list of some of the more notable uh, notable stuff, and there there's some really good stuff. There's some inconsequential stuff, but like there's a scene early on where uh, where uh, young William Miller is in the shower at his middle school, and they uh, and they're making fun of him for not having any pubes, and so his right. nickname is Pubes. Right. Um, that that's kind of inconsequential. One of the things I thought was really interesting was. Um, the re- uh, revelation that Penny Lane invented the Band-Aids after her heart was broken by another by Iggy, rock star. Iggy Pop. Yeah. yeah. So so it's it's not just, you know, you get this idea that, you know, she's, she's doing this because of her love of the music. No, she's doing this as a way to not get hurt again. So how old uh, is she actually? All right, we need to talk about this. This is a great debate to have, okay? Because there are so many ways to interpret that scene where she says, me too, but how old are we really? I always assumed that she was 16 years old, if not younger. But I don't know if that's the way you both interpreted that. I always assumed that she was 16, but I can't see how she would ever be exposed to that lifestyle to the point that she would have had multiple summers following around the same band by that age. I mean... I don't know, and, and and especially later when they talk about her mother and stuff, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like she would have already been there at that point, and plus that's like very <laughs> problematic and statutory rape, obviously, but I don't know. No kidding. Well, and, and they, they go into a little more detail on the director's cut on how she got into it after she has her, has her Quaaludes incident, and, and how... What was it? Some someone from like Zeppelin or something? No, it was uh, it was Keith Richards from Rolling Stone. Rolling Stones asked uh, asked her to get her, or asked her to get him like iced tea or something, and she never went back. And and she went from just being a groupie to being like known by everyone. Everyone knew who Penny Lane was. Yeah, I don't know how she could have done all that and only have been sixteen. Well, and if you watch also the end of the movie, I mean, it's pretty clear that when Russell calls her, she's in like an apartment, you know, that she owns, right? Mm, I, and it's I, also... I, I pictured what? that as, I thought that was like her mother's house. That was the way I, I always mean, thought about it. 
I don't know. It could be. It could be. And and you know, obviously, when Russell goes to William Miller's house, he he assumes that Penny had lived with her mom. But I, I I think you're right, Todd. It like reinforces these guys as like really really sketchy if they're like hanging around with sixteen year old girls. However, it was the 1970s. Yeah. But 1973, because eleven years would be yes. 1984. Think about that. Think about that. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I assume that she's probably 20. That's that's what I think, but I don't know. I was thinking 19 or 20, somewhere in there. So she's just lying when she says how old she is to William Miller. Yeah, I think she was manipulating him to tell her how old he actually was, even though she'll never actually admit what her real name is. Yeah, I think that's a fair, that's a fair statement to make. Todd, do you have a category that you want to throw out there? Um... Well, one that we were talking about doing was what 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 is the best Stillwater concert that we see, and uh, so I I mark down all the cities that they go to. We only see three concerts, but you can kind of gather what kind of concerts they had. So in San Diego, is like the biggest concert. It looked like there was most people there. That's where you first meet Stillwater, and then they go to Phoenix, and that's where uh, Russell gets electrocuted. Then they go to Topeka, which we don't see, but that but it must not have been very good because they end up fighting afterwards over the T-shirts and and there's like the the uh, Russell goes and does acid at that one fan's party, and they Real go to gr- people man. Then Greenville must have been a really boring concert because apparently it's a really boring city because uh, any other city but Greenville. <laughs> yep, that's where he gets deflowered. <laughs> then they go to Cleveland, which would be my pick for what would be the best concert because afterwards they're like fired up. They're like. They're like, hell yeah, you send in an Asian, we'll send him out on a rail. <laughs> it's like, seem like they got like a whole bunch of camaraderie and stuff in that one. Uh, and then they go to Maryland, which we don't really see, but that's where the poker party happens. So I'm not really sure what was going on there. And then there was New York, where they actually get, uh, which I assume was a it's huge not, concert. But Wait a second, you're talking about Boston, right? Not Maryland. No, they go to Maryland. No, they go to Boston. Well, they... Where, when do they go to Maryland. Well, maybe they don't actually go to Maryland, but they say, like, after Cleveland, they're like, they're like, uh, well, that's where he says, like, we'll do the interview in Maryland or whatever. Like, that, that was the, that was the next thing. So they don't actually show them anywhere in Maryland, I guess. I, th- I assume that that was the same place, but they go to Boston no, before what? New York. Yeah, when they, when they have the poker, ter- the poker game takes place in Boston. And, and that's going to, yeah. le- that would, that, that's going to lead me to one of the big flaws in the movie. But that scene takes well, place but in they, Boston. They say the next spot, the next stop is Maryland. Do they? I don't remember that. Terry, what's your verdict? I thought they go straight to Boston from Cleveland. I remember Maryland. Ah, okay. I never, I, I didn't, I know, I didn't even know they went to Boston. I would have written it down. They said, they say it in the title. They have a, t- a title for it. Right, hmm. right as they're going into the poker game. But so wait, so if they were going to Maryland though, I mean, this is what you're getting at. They're going to Maryland from Cleveland on the plane. Why are they over Tupelo, Mississippi? Well, that's later that's, in the movie. That's, that's when after they, New York. They're flying back to uh, back California. to L.A. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Okay, yeah. Okay, so best concert. L- let's stay on that, but I want to come back to this issue because this, is this is one of the flaws I have in the movie. Okay, best concert. I would go with Topeka because that's when, um, that's when uh, William s- says, you know, you guys had a great concert. S- you-, you have to be depressed to write a sad song. You have to be in love to write a love song. And uh, he's really pumped up. So I would assume Topeka was pretty awesome. But Cleveland's got to be... Cleveland's the one where, the, like, he's even like, after a great show like that, what are you going to, like, what, what do you have to say and all that stuff? 
And then they're like, and then that's when they bring in Jimmy Fallon and you know, like Cleveland's got to be the best concert. And plus, it looked awesome. That and that was where, where uh, where Dick is totally into like, please welcome to Cleveland, Stillwater. And then he has to he he, he like gave everything to the point that he had to pull out a cigarette. <laughs> like right afterwards, <laughs> Cleveland was the best concert. It's got to be. Wasn't it in Cleveland too that uh, that Russell talked to Elaine on the phone and yes. like totally wasn't into the yes. whole, like they're doing their their get on my back for a piggyback ride and he's totally not into it at all because Elaine totally freaked him out. Yeah, he even says he freaked them out just like just like Eric Stone Street does. <laughs> so so re- really quick back to director's cut. The first time that's uttered is by Daryl who sneaks into William's room af- while Anita's on a flight to uh, somewhere else. Right. And he sneaks into a, in, into his room. And he's like, I'm just going to hang out here. Your mom kind of freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, back to the question. I would say the best concert is San Diego because it's, it's the one and only time we hear Fever Dog, which is the best song, which we might get into later. And they go immediately from their concert in San Diego to the Riot House. Which is where everybody is. Do you and know about the Riot House? It, I think I've heard of it. Sounds sunset strip. But I, I mean, just just being in Southern California, where everything—that's where it's all happening. Uh, that had to be that had to be the best show. All happening. It did look like the biggest concert too. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. So speaking of something that Terry brought up, uh, which is like uh how they use like certain words throughout the movie so there's one thing i noticed about how i feel like the movie is desperate to get our approval as being cool and they mentioned <laughs> the word cool so many times in this movie like the first time is when anita says to william one day you'll be cool you'll be cool and then like a couple scenes later it's uh it's lester saying the industry of cool and then uh Russell is like one d- or he's like he's like just make us look cool like and like I, like you don't need to write down what I say just make us look cool and then later on Lester's like I met you you are not cool and then he has this the great line the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone when you're uncool and then like you have Jeff Beebe after they find out what William wrote being like is that is it that hard to make us look cool yeah just make us look cool yeah that's what yeah like th- there's like this like yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what that actually means, but I feel like the movie is desperate to ha- let like for us to feel like the movie is cool. And it, well, and how everyone is just trying to be cool, and and no one really knows what cool is. They just want it to happen. Yeah, and, and Penny, uh, Penny even says that to like when when uh, William's kind of about like ready to like burst out of his skin, and, and she's like, "Hey, just be cool." <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, so an- another another director's cut revelation of Russell trying to look cool. Uh, it's revealed in the in the director's cut that Russell Russell didn't graduate high school, but it says in his bio that he did. So, so William can't write that in the in the article. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that is an interesting point, though. And yeah, th- there's a lot of dialogue that's kind of repeated over and over again there. All right, well, I got a category that I want to open up, and that is the biggest villain or douchebag in this movie. And uh, I'm just, I'm just going to start out with the person that annoys me the most in this movie, and that is Allison the Fact Checker from Rolling Stone, okay? <laughs> I mean, 
Look, this woman is not happy to work at Rolling Stone. I mean, there is something wrong with her. I mean, she hates William from the beginning. You know, she does not want to go through his scribbles. She does not like the way that he characterizes women as chicks. And you know what? She immediately dismisses William when Russell calls and says that 90% of the story is fake. And I mean, if you watch that scene, okay, um, Ben Fong Torres is willing to bat for William and she just completely annihilates it. So like, you know what? I mean, I'm sorry, but like, you know, she is a fact checker with like an issue. And for her to say that he's just some fan, what do you expect? Like, that's terrible, okay? She is the villain of this movie. Biggest douchebag. Fact checker, Allison. I've got one. I've got one that's better than that. It has to to be Mark Maron, the the promoter in Phoenix that that electrocutes Russell Hammond and all he can do is complain about how they didn't play their full set. Well, yeah, they can't play their full set. You almost killed the guitarist. And and so yeah, he wants to lock them in and and lock the gates so they can't escape. So they have to play their set, even though they physically can't play the set. And what because, makes him a what yeah. makes him a huge douchebag too is that he keeps their deposit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he makes them pay yeah. for the gate. And makes them. You want to buy a gate? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you just bought a gate. <laughs> neither of those were the ones that I first thought of. My number one biggest villain is Freddy. The doorman in in San Diego, because oh. like he won't let oh, William yeah. in, even though like the band aids are like vouching for him. Like if you're going into a place with a bunch of girls, they're gonna let you just roll in if if they vouch for you. But like he doesn't even let him do it then, and he's oh, even no. like trying Not to push him. Like they have to have Dick like <laughs> shove him to the side in order for him to get in with Stillwater. Freddie and and, and Freddie won't answer the door when Stillwater even gets there. They're about to play, and they have to like beat the door down for them to actually get in. The only way the door actually opens is because, like, uh, Black Sabbath comes, like, rolling through the garage. I looked up Freddy on IMDb, and his only other movie credits are The Mothman Prophecies and Jerry Maguire. (laughs) I don't remember who he was in Jerry Maguire, though. But he could have been a great character actor. Could be. Uh, Okay, so I I have a couple, uh, as we're in between stuff right now, I have a couple more director's cut things that I want to put out there. First, so... In the director's cut, it shows William interview each member of the band, and uh, and it goes about as you would expect. First, he interviews the bass player, and he says, you know, a, a band is like a perfect cocktail, and, and everyone get, brings a different ingredient. What do you bring to the band? What do you add to the band? And his response is, I'm the bass player. <laughs> I, I play bass, man. <laughs> They're having like and a then, big fight, and all he does is say, "Like, man, let's just go get some like barbecue or something, man." Yeah, <laughs> he's one of my favorite characters. Well, that's what he says in Topeka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then he interviews the drummer, and he says, "What do you love about music?" And he just shrugs his shoulders and keeps air drumming. Um, but the best the best one has to be has to be when he interviews Jeff Beebe, because he interviews him, and he says, "The brain makes mistakes, but it but instincts are pure." So, like, when I'm on stage, that's, like, the only time I'm able to shut the brain out completely and just let my instincts ride. And that's why on stage it's so pure. And when when Russell and I are both able to do that at the same time, that's when we're at our best. And, I mean, it's just all this, like, garbage that's, you know, rock and roll can save the world, the chicks are great. I sound like a dick. I didn't say that. <laughs> You're a dick. <laughs> uh, so yeah, 
yeah, no, that I I I just love that. I thought it was it was hilarious. Why did we say why don't we say Jason Lee as a solid war candidate? Who else could have played that role? Like he's awesome. But he doesn't actually he sing is. though. He True. I, I no, he that. he's he's lip syncing. Yeah. yeah. Na- Nancy Wilson, isn't that who it was? She wasn't singing. Yeah, I think yeah, she, she it was, it's it? a female singer that is the the voice of Stillwater. Really? I didn't think I thought I saw someone else. How could Anyways. it be a female voice of Stillwater? I don't know. I I mean, I think it was might have been on like the commentary or something. I remember hearing that where like the yeah, it was a female singer and they're they're like she has this like crazy voice and like that wouldn't have, I, Stillwater wouldn't have been the same without her. I think you've taken too many quaaludes, Todd. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the uh, the uh, guitar tracks for Stillwater's songs were played by Mike McCready from Pearl Jam. Yeah, I knew that. Can we just talk about Stillwater for a second? Oh, hold on. It was I, it was Marty Fredrickson. Provided the lead singing vocals. Do you think Stillwater is actually a good band? Yes. I could listen yeah. to Fever Dog all day. I think so. Is like Fever you're Dog saying your... you love Fever Dog? That's the buzz. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I mean, let's be honest though. Russell is a once-in-a-lifetime musician, you know? He's he's like he's like Darren Aronofsky, you know? He comes along every once, every 25, 30 years, okay? And, like, is... The rest of the band is not up to his level. And I think the movie makes it very clear that Russell is a transcendent musician. These other <laughs> are holding him back. So, does that really affect the quality of their music? I mean, this is one of the flaws in the movie, which is I, I, I wish there was more Stillwater music in it. And I feel like it's because they're not actually that great of a band. Well, there is a whole soundtrack that comes with the untitled version. So, I mean, they have other songs. They just they only play like three, three what they only play three songs or at least parts I know. of three songs. So Fever the... Dog and Doctor Doctor and oh, it's something else. Love Thing and Love Comes and Goes are the names of the songs. And you had to be there. I think that's one of the that's yes. The you had to be there. That's, that's the same right. song, I think. Okay, no, there's at... there's a one that's uh, there's a one concert yeah. that's just a like a. Uh, compilation of several different songs. I don't know. Just, just, just making the argument that maybe they're not the greatest band in the world. But I could listen to Fever Dog all day. That's I, the reason that's why they're not song. super famous yet, and they've been doing it forever. They were still okay. the Jeff Beebe band when they they still had Doris at that point. <laughs> that's true. All right. So, so a great, uh, a great uh, little nugget that uh, I discovered was um, in the scene where they discover what uh, what William wrote. And, you know, is it that hard to make us look cool and everything? Jeff Beebe is wearing a, a Jeff Beebe band shirt. But the, the face on it is Russell Hammond. Right. <laughs> nice. And, yeah, and, and it kind of goes towards a, a scene that's a little later on in the director's cut where uh, where Russell and Jeff are trying to, to you know, reconcile and work things out. And, and Jeff says to Russell, I'm the you they get when they can't have you. Yes, that that and I thought that was that was that was a good line. I'm really amazed that Jeff Beebe did not come up in our conversation. The biggest douchebag in this movie, or <laughs> or well, Leslie. Well, yeah, well, Jeff. Le- I was oh, thinking about yeah. If we're talking the douchebag and not villain, then yeah, Jeff. Because I mean, if someone even calls him a dick. He even admits that he sounds like a dick because he is a dick. 
<laughs> I mean, that's why I think it goes back to Jason Lee as like maybe I changed my answer about highest highest war because like I mean he's he's amazing in that movie as a douchebag. You know, I don't think there are many other actors that could pull that off. Okay, so so we're getting into something. Let, let's let's actually do this as a category now. All right. Biggest flaw in the movie. Oh, good. Okay. Biggest flaw in the movie. Zach, I've heard you say that you have a couple. Tell us what you got. All right. Uh, I have a few, but I'm just going to say one for now. Um, I've never liked in this movie how uh, the character of Elaine, I think there's an issue with her. Now, I get that she's based off Cameron Crowe's real mom, and, and Cameron Crowe's mom was really like this, but I've never quite reconciled the idea that she could be, on the one hand, so open-minded to poetry and literature and self-improvement and intellectualism, and, uh, you know, she even kind of embraces uh, the, 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 the radical movement a little bit, and that opposed to rock and roll music, okay? It's a contradiction that the movie never really reconciled reconciles i mean are you kidding me she doesn't know what a narc is give me a break she's a, supposedly this enlightened college professor but she completely rejects rock and roll now i realize i have come to the conclusion now that i'm 30 years old i i understand her uh reticence to let william miller go on tour with Stillwater because I think you know you want your teenager to do really well in life and you know I understand her worrying about her teenager but for her to completely have a wholesale rejection of rock and roll I think is just uh, something I've never really understood about the movie and I like her as a character and I think Frances McDormand is great in the movie but I don't buy that on the one hand she can be that open-minded and on the other hand she can be that sort of uh, you know just uh, completely rigid about rock and roll my 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 flaw was the exact same thing the exact same thing elaine is this crazy character but it doesn't she doesn't add up i mean she's a psychology professor she used to teach elementary school how is she so bad at raising her kids but i mean how, how does she have no idea how 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 kids operate when she her job is to teach them the she's thing a is she's professor though it's different she said she, she taught she, elementary she, school. Yeah, she taught kindergarten. The thing is, she's based on Cameron Crowe's mom. And we can understand maybe to a certain extent if she's based off a real character that maybe, you know, that kind of that level of dysfunction contains inherent contradictions. And but it's just as a movie, it's hard to it's hard to grapple with that, especially by 1973, too. I mean, you would think this woman would be a little bit more enlightened. So so here 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 was the biggest one that I that I saw. How can she be a psychology professor, yet still utter the line that adolescence is a marketing tool? I mean, that, that makes no sense. <laughs> and then later on, while she's teaching her class, she chalks something up to hormones. It's like, no, it can't be hormones, because you already said that adolescence is a marketing tool. These things do not add up. How can well, you... She said how... that because she... Like, because uh, her for all intents and purposes, a 18-year-old son is only 15. Like, he didn't need, he didn't need to go through all that, so she didn't let him. That's the thing. Like, you she, robbed him a, of an adolescence. She's a parent, adolescence she's a is a single, marketing tool. She's a single parent, and she's a teacher, and so she's protecting her son, even though she probably can't blame him for what he's doing. But he's only 15 when he should be 18. <laughs> Alright, Todd, we, we never got to your flaw. Okay, so this is a, a much more important flaw because it's always bothered me since the first time I saw it. I do not understand the terms of the road manager poker deal that they make. <laughs> because, okay, so yes. here's, Dick says, I have a side proposition for the winner. 
50 dollars for in a case of Heineken for the band aids essentially. So, and then they play Indian poker. But what if Dick had won? Because like Dick loses, he's got a two, and the other guy's got anything else, so he loses. And then so he's like, okay, the band aids go to humble pie. But he's the, the humble pie is like, okay, so we owe you fifty dollars in the case of Heineken. There was no... The, what does the poker have to do with anything? He, they just traded. It didn't matter if Dick won or Humble Pie won. What does poker have to do with anything? Like, oh my god, that was the greatest Todd quote. No, I mean, that was unbelievable. No, I mean, I that never is a thought serious of that. problem. That's amazing. How would you That's never amazing. think of that? Because when he's like, oh, so we owe you 50 bucks in a case of Heineken. I'm like, why? You won. That, 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 that was nothing very... at stake. It was just a trade. The poker game was... It had nothing to do with it. Was, that that is a that is a great point. However, I yes, I agree. I love the fact that of all the flaws, Todd brings up the poker game. <laughs> well, it's obvious though. I, I thought it was obvious. That's a great point. Okay, can I bring up one more flaw? Yeah. Okay. Well, th- this this goes into a little bit of the next category that I want to bring up, which is biggest conspiracy theories in this movie. But I'm going to bring it up right now. Okay. How old is William Miller? I don't think the movie understands how old he is, okay? I've never understood how old he is. Supposedly, if you watch the scene, we are to understand that he skipped the first grade and fifth grade. But the problem with that logic... No, he didn't skip first grade. They put him in first grade when he was three. No, he... He didn't go to the first grade. Or no, excuse me. He skipped kindergarten. He was in first grade. When he was supposedly when no when he was five or six. Okay. Yeah, he was put in. He was put in kindergarten a little young. A year. He didn't go to kindergarten. He skipped kindergarten. He was put in first grade. Okay. Yeah, that was it. So he didn't know that he skipped. Well, excuse me. He he thought that he had only skipped fifth grade. All right. The revelation is that he also had skipped kindergarten, which he didn't realize. So he's two years behind his entire class. So when he says they're 13 and I'm 12, he's really 11. Okay. But he's actually only 10 because he skipped two grades, not one grade. All right. The problem with this logic is that in 1970, he would have been 10 years old. And by 1973, he's supposedly 15 years old. Where do the extra two years come in? Okay? No, Plus, it starts in 1969, not 1970. No, I thought that scene was in 1970. No, it's 1969, and then, because four years later, because, uh, yeah, it's definitely 1973 because of uh, 11 years until Well, it's definitely 73. I guess, I guess the question is... until his senior year, because he's graduating, so it's four years. Right, but, well, that was my other problem with the movie, which is that, okay, so he's, at the beginning of the movie, he is in 8th grade. Is that what we're supposed to believe? Yeah, I suppose. 8th, 7th, 8th grade. how does he get to being, graduating from high school in that three years' time? The, The logic of the movie doesn't make sense, because, like, he's supposedly only 11 years old, possibly 10, because he actually skipped two years well, and by the, by 1973 he's 15 years old so what month is it when they start the movie july it's 19 it's 1970 i thought the, it's christmas it's december of december of seven no it's not december, they start the movie in december. december in 69 no, no, no. December okay 69. okay okay it's so here christmas here's in july and they this were is what knows right okay so but, then he wouldn't have been in school so then those scenes with him in but the they're giving him his yearbook this in is, 1970. So, so this is this is what I, one of the questions i had is does the movie start 
and because Anita brings up the uh, the we celebrate Christmas in September thing, but they were um, in the director's cut. They have a they they have something where um, where they're writing Happy Christmas on one of the on one of the uh, the windows. So it's December when the movie starts. Right. But he's getting his yearbook in the car, which means that would be the end of the school year. Right. May of seventy. So he's eleven in May of seventy. And then how does he magically become 15 by 1973 is my question. I mean, he says that they're 13. I'm 12. How does he become 15? That the math doesn't add up. And I've spent way too much time thinking about this scene. Probably way too much time talking about this scene on this stupid podcast. But it's just a flaw in the movie. It doesn't make sense. The, the logic of his age aging does not make sense. I feel like both of these could have been, like, Bill Simmons segments, where he, like, bitches about, like, how old uh, Donis Creed could have been if he, like, the timeline doesn't add up and, like, how long it takes Jerry Maguire to get from L.A. to, or Phoenix to L.A. or whatever. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's get a couple more, uh, couple more things in here before we, uh, we wrap up this, uh, this podcast here. I mean, talking about uh, indulgent stuff. I think this is about as indulgent as we get going on a five-minute tirade on <laughs> on timelines in Almost Famous. Okay, can I say my two conspiracy theories? Because one of them oh, was yeah, about William's age. All right, so here are the other two conspiracy theories I have. All right, uh, number one conspiracy theory. I think it's very curious that Stillwater originated in Troy, Michigan, and that Dennis hopes... Uh, his his um he, he hit a man in Dearborn, that, Michigan. He hit a man in Dearborn, Michigan. There has to be a connection. That's like ten minutes away. They're really close. What's the story there? Who did he hit? It's got to be someone related to Stillwater, right? They're I mean they're from That's the same no city. But it's just like Troy, Michigan, and Dearborn, Michigan are apparently really close. Like I Google mapped that. Like it's re- they're like right next to each other. That there has to be a relationship. Maybe he hit Marna. But Mar oh well that's a that's a possibility. But is Marna still alive? I don't know. <laughs> he says he hit a man though. Well, he he hit a man, or he hit someone and kept and just kept driving. He can't know. But he'll name. never forget his face. He haunt yeah, haunts him every day. <laughs> Maybe Marna. So did he actually like stop <laughs> and like look at his face, or did he like just keep? Was it just a hit and run, or just <laughs> like that's interesting <sighs> to think about. Hmm. The other conspiracy theory I have is that, uh, and, and this relates a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, what if William Miller grew up and changed his name to Miles Raymond? I think... I've thought like, about look, that. There were a we, couple we, lines we, when we, I was like, that is a Miles line. I mean, he, he has the mother, okay? He's got the sister with Wendy, Ron, and the twins. He lives in San Diego. He goes to college, meets his freshman year roommate. He's a writer. He's, he's dark and brooding and mysterious. I think that the, the elements are all there. And the timeline works out perfectly, too. I, we don't know exactly when he was born, but around 1960, that makes sense. It checks out. He becomes Miles. <laughs> I like it. I actually did draw that comparison, too. So I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> So what do you guys think is the, the... Who gives the worst performance in this amazing ensemble cast? I think there are three options. One of which I don't even necessarily even agree with. Uh, which is <laughs> Zoe Deschanel. Because I feel like she is so stale 
when she, every scene she's in, but you, you come to realize that she's just really high the whole time, and she's like the robot that her mother was trying to create, but she still is really kind of awkward and boring when she's in those scenes. There's there, and then there's John Fedovich, who plays Ed the drummer. I just think he's kind of ridiculous. And then Noah Taylor is, like, really over the top in every scene he's in. Those are my three three uh, nominees. Yeah, yeah I... I'd... Oh, go ahead, Jerry. I would probably say Noah Taylor. I think he's he's kind of miscast in that. Um, I mean, you, yeah. Why why are you going and getting this British guy to to be the manager of a rock and roll band in the seventies from Michigan? That make any sense? And 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 yeah, it kind of shows. And he's one that his his British accent sneaks out every now and then too. Yes, the accent is terrible. I totally agree. Noah Taylor's the, the worst part of this movie. I mean, this this guy just does not belong in this movie. He he, he makes it look like Spinal Tap. That's that that's the issue. You know, he's a ridiculous, over the top character in a movie that I think has a lot of subtlety. So I was trying to figure this out. What do you think uh, Dick says to Penny in New York to get her to go away? Because she seems so like offended by whatever he says to her. And then to the point that she's going to go try to overdose on Quaaludes. Like, what do you think he actually says in order for her to look that hurt over when we're just, like, going over and being there for, like, two seconds? Hmm. That's a great question. That is a great question. We'll it's never like, know. It's like asking what Bill Murray said to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation. Yeah. Exactly. Unanswerable, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that's an interesting one. I hadn't thought about that before. Because, yeah, I mean, it is so, like, so sudden that she just, like, is, like, so hurt by whatever he said. I don't know if it was, like, something about how Russell never actually cared for her or something, or, like, you're hurting the band or something. I don't know what could have possibly been that offensive that she was going to go try to kill herself. That's a great point. Um... I got a, I got another category I want to bring up real fast, which okay. is a category we want to do on every every one of these podcasts because this is going so well and we're going to do so many movies. Um, big, biggest stick man in this movie. Now, this is a this is a deceptive category because I feel like Russell is the obvious candidate. However, Russell technically only sleeps with two people in this movie. And it is a very big deal when it's revealed that he slept with Penny Lane and everyone kind of notices that and it's like a big aha moment. So there are there's evidence that Russell may not be the biggest stick man in this movie. And with that being said, my nomination is Larry. Larry shows up with a new girl in basically every hotel they're at. We don't know that much about him, but there's like a lot of women around Larry. I think Larry's getting it in. I think he's the biggest stick man. Wasn't he he's, just sleeping he's... with what, Beth, I think? Was it? Uh, no, they're no, they're Dick definitely different women. So he was with Plexia. No, that's Jeff. Ple- Plexia is with Jeff. Larry is with a different woman in virtually every city they're in. I mean, and you know, we we don't know that much about these women, but if we're just talking about getting it in, you know, Burgess Meredith level, I think I think Larry achieves that. So it was Estrella. That was the one. Yeah, yeah, he's with Estrella. That's an interesting one to go with. I was gonna go with uh, I was gonna go with Jeff or Dick, because I mean, Jeff we we know I mean he's with Palexia, we know he's been with uh, Leslie with Leslie, and, and doesn't and yeah and he has his own doesn't he have his own woman at home too, so there's yeah, that he... and then and then and then you have Dick who uh, eventually ends up with 
with Beth from Denver and the purple aura. But right. she shows up halfway through. So what what was he doing before Beth showed up? And Beth wasn't around right. that long even. Right. Well, I was thinking... So he, he, he was going for the short-term Band-Aids. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Band-Aids have got to be at the top of the list, like, overall, I would think. I would think that that Sapphire and Plexia probably have the highest... Uh, have the have the highest number but i don't know i i kind of think daryl might be a stick man i'm not, I'm not really sure he kind of he looks like stifler I i've always thought that i think he might yeah he's de- he's definitely not faithful to anita so. well i'm going off your rules from like the podcast three months ago when we did our our power rankings where you said women can't be on this list if women were on the list of stick men it would obviously be marna Dick's ex-wife because <laughs> she slept with the whole band. That, I, well, I think you know, all of minimum. them slept with the whole band, though. It's very possible, except for the drummer. He's gay and humble pie. Yeah, and they slept. They, and and apparently, what Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. Okay, okay. How how I'm gonna go if if it could be women. I'm gonna go with Beth from Denver because how desperate of a band aid do you have to be to end up with a manager? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> well, you just didn't she, want to she... have a gangbang with uh, the 15-year-old, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay, I've got... I've got two more that I, that I want to ponder here. Um, and, and both are going to be kind of hard to answer on the spot, but I just want to throw them out there as, as, as think pieces. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, the first one is... Um, okay, for a good portion of the movie, Penny Lane is running around with a Polaroid camera. What are the what would have been the best Polaroid shots Penny Lane took throughout the tour? Great question. I, I want I want to see a great Polaroid shot of like backstage looking out on the looking out on the crowd at one of the concerts. Anyway, something to think about. Well, there there are two indelible images from this movie, but Penny Lane was in neither scene. The first is when Russell is on the roof and screaming i'm a golden god yes obviously and then the other scene that i think is totally meme worthy as a great still would be when jeff bb screams to the heavens you know why couldn't you just how hard is it to make us look cool that should be a meme but she wasn't there to take that photograph so those are those are the two answers i think of so so interesting uh addition from the director's cut on the i'm a golden god scene after he jumps in the pool everyone jumps in too uh and in the original it just looks like it's a party in the director's cut, it's because Russell doesn't come back up. And so they all jump in to save him. <laughs> like, they legit <laughs> jump in to save him because he doesn't come back up. It's There's like 10 seconds where like, we're like, he's not coming up, man. Don't worry, I'll save you, Russell. <laughs> so, like, they're legit saving him because he do, he's not coming back up to the surface. Anyways. I kind of yeah. got that just anyway, but... Oh, I, I, I just thought it was like, everybody jump in now. Anyways, Todd, do you have a, uh, I, I guess it's the, the most, uh, the most poignant moment of the, of the movie, the best shot of the movie. What do I, do I know what the best shot of the movie is? Yeah. Not that, that Penny Lane would have taken a picture of. I don't know. Maybe William running after her in the airport or something. Mm. That would have been an interesting mm, picture. That's a good one. That is a good one. Okay, so then the other the other uh, category I had, and and this is this is one that it, it's gonna be hard to talk about now, but you can think about it. 
we always cast the remake and we decided not to do that this time because it's almost impossible to uh to recast this movie however one of the things that i started thinking about was instead of casting the remake i started thinking about who would play these parts if it were made in 1973 oh i mean we're, we're talking and i started looking up some some guys so we're talking about like this movie potentially starring like Gary Busey and and Nick Nolte and James Caan and Harrison Ford and guys like that taking on the lead roles uh, of of if it actually was was made in the time it was supposed to it, it took place. Obviously, William Miller would be Cameron Crowe, but other than right. that, Piper Laurie <laughs> would be Penny Lane or Shelley Winters. Shelley Winters could do it to him. Mm. Uh, maybe, maybe Richard Dreyfus as Lester Bangs. Jack Nicholson as Russell Hammond. That'd be weird. Maybe, maybe, maybe Chris Christopherson though. I think they might go with like an actor slash musician. Sister oh, okay. Skysek would have been a band aid. Yes. Oh yes. yeah, she would have. Or and Shelley Duvall because she basically was one in Nashville. But yeah, that, that I, I knew that would be a tough one to talk about on the spot. But I thought of it as we were going through and. That would have been. I feel that, like that'd Francis, be interesting. I feel like Francis Ford Coppola would have directed. That would have been interesting, or or uh, I mean, would this be something for like George Lucas? I mean, it's not too yeah. far off of American Graffiti. It's very true. Or Scorsese loves his music movies. That's true too. What What are your guys' uh, favorite use of song in this in the in, in Almost Famous? Because for yeah, me, there's a couple that. that really that really stand out that I can't hear the song any other way but being in this movie. But I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think. Well, I mean, to me, Simon and Garfunkel's "America." I cannot hear that song without thinking of "Almost Famous," and I realize there are several several songs that are kind of like that, but. Uh, that song is perfect. I think it perfectly sums up the state of Anita at that scene, at that point in the movie, as she's going to see America. And it perfectly sums up the feelings of young William Miller as he discovers the uh, ecstasy of rock and roll music. And it's perfect for that scene because they've also talked about Simon and Garfunkel in that scene, how they're on drugs. It plays perfectly. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I mean, the obvious, the obvious one is Tiny Dancer, but I'm that when I when I think of music from this movie, I think Tiny Dancer and I think the Stillwater songs, which I think are 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 amazing. Um, one of the other it, one of the other spots that that stood out to me that was just kind of a a little throwaway spot was the um the random song that William heard uh, just two random. Uh, musicians playing as he was walking through the right house trying to get to Stillwater's room. Oh um, yeah. And, and and it it was just like this this little moment of of you know that this I mean this could have been uh this could have been the start of the uh the 70s version of the Star is Born right there. Uh, <laughs> but uh but yeah no that's that's one that that pops into my head. So for me the other ones that stand out there's Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's by Elton John, which is a song where William's like chasing mm-hmm. Penny back to hotel in New York, which mm-hmm. that that song is always going to go through my head when I hear that song. 
Uh, then there's River by Joni Mitchell, which is a song when uh, Russell and Penny first see each other in the movie. And it's just sort of like playing in the background. It's really sort of touching. I've never heard the song before. And then there's The Wind by Cat Stevens, which is the song where Penny's dancing in the gym with all the confetti. All of those, I, 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 can't, I can't see the scenes being the same without those songs. I read somewhere that that scene where Penny Lane is dancing in the empty gym is Russell Crowe's favorite scene of the whole movie. Russell Crowe? Ru- Cameron Crowe, my bad. <laughs> Cameron Crowe's favorite scene. Russell Crowe could have played Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe would, yeah. He'd probably like this movie. <laughs> I, I agree with you, Todd. I would also submit Feel Flows by the Beach Boys, which plays over the ending credits, but it's also in the scene in San Diego when they actually, uh, when uh, uh, William Miller is talking to Penny Lane. Great song. I, I've never heard that song in any other context. There's a million. So Rand- that, like, I read that the, the usual movies have like $1.5 million budget for their their soundtracks and this movie had three and a half million dollar budget and so there's no no wonder why they couldn't get <laughs> stairway to heaven <laughs> they got way over budget on their music <laughs> I, I i i read somewhere that led zeppelin just wouldn't let it let it go like, like they 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 allowed they they rarely allow access to their songs and they allowed access to three of them but they would not give up stairway to heaven because they're going to play the whole song <laughs> probably yeah um random random aside that i just thought of as a potential flaw in the movie russell hammond never sings the only time you see him anywhere near microphone is when it electrocutes him he sings peggy sue well no no in in a concert though in a concert though he's usually just jamming out on his guitar he's the guitarist with mystique i know then why is he anywhere close to a microphone that could electrocute him that's a good point Anyways. That's a good point. Can I bring up my other flaw, too, that we didn't talk about, which is that the scene where uh, Penny Lane talks about um, what kind of beer, there is no way that scene takes place in Boston. Give me a break. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's Maryland. It's not Maryland, man. It's Boston. Watch the movie again. You didn't that, even know they went to Maryland. Clearly... You watched it twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Maryland, man. It takes place in Boston. They have a credit that says Boston right before the poker game. Um. Yeah, and you know, for a while I thought a flaw with the movie was that they went to Greenville. Like, where the f*** is Greenville? I I mean, I looked it up on Wikipedia. I guess there's like a Greenville in South Carolina. I've never quite bought that, but whatever. I think I saw that there's one in Tennessee. But I assume South Carolina is a little more boring than being in Tennessee, anywhere near Nashville or anything, right? Yeah. that's That's a big debate. Okay, I got one more category I want to bring up, which is MVP of the movie. Who wins this movie, okay? Who, like, who's just the best? I, I think I mean, Cameron Crowe's screenplay is the MVP of the movie. I mean, it did take him four years to develop. And yeah, yeah I, would say, I would say Cameron Crowe is the, is the MVP, simply because, I mean... This movie is amazing, and it's an amazing story, and it actually happened to him. Yeah, like it's it, not for him, it wasn't Stillwater. <laughs> yeah, for him, it wasn't Stillwater. It was the Almond Brothers that he followed around for an entire summer, um, when he was a teenager like this. And yeah, I th- I think the fact that this actually happened to this guy, and then he got it into a position where he could tell his own story, I, that I can't imagine ever topping that. <laughs> 
nicely done. Um, I was a little more literal in the interpretation of this question. I went with the character of Sapphire because without mm. Sapphire, first of all, William Miller never gets in the Coliseum, or excuse me, the Band-Aids never get in the Coliseum. Okay, without Sapphire, Elaine probably calls the authorities to bring back William Miller because she talks to Elaine and convinces her that She's you know, the maid. Her, her son's okay. <laughs> exactly. It's the maid talking. And then finally, maybe the most importantly, she's the one who convinces Russell to call Penny. I mean, without her talking to him about, you know, everyone knows about the Quaaludes, everyone knows how you treated her, Russell would have never picked up the phone and he never would have gone to William's house. So I think Sapphire wins the movie. Yeah, if we're talking characters, that's a good one. Um, I also think I think Jeff Beebe is a is an MVP of this movie because by the end of it, you know, Stillwater got their cover on the ro- got the cover of the Rolling Stone and got big enough that Russell can't leave, so Jeff still has a band, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 everything's good between Russell and Jeff, and uh, and things move forward. But because if if Russell leaves, Stillwater's over, and and Jeff is is on his own, and so I think I think. If you're talking about who who plays out the best in the end, Jeff plays out about as good as he can. I mean, that's all he that's all he was hoping for is that his band hits it big, and the only way it hits it big is if Russell stays in the band and they get the cover of the Rolling Stone, and both those things happened. Wow, that's like Green Book winning Best Picture, man. <laughs> <laughs> I still find it hard to believe that it was actually called the Jeff Beebe band at one point. Because obviously Russell is the most, he's the most talented guy there. They all admit it. Uh, I I just love that the Jeff Beebe band's, you know, logo was Russell's face. (laughs) That says so much. One thing I noticed about this movie rewatching it is that when they're in the Tupelo airport and uh, Russell turns around to talk to William, it actually is the exact same image as it is on the t-shirts because it's him turned around and the band in the background. Oh, interesting. Or maybe I was just intoxicated watching it, but it was a, it was a very striking moment. Both could be true. Yes, absolutely. Hey, you guys want to do some trivia? I got some trivia questions. All right, really... let, let, hit us with the trivia. All right, all right. These are like random, these are extremely difficult questions that no one could possibly get except for people who've watched the movie 200 times like, like both of you have. Okay, here we go. What is the name of the San Diego newspaper that William wrote San for? Diego Door. Nice job, Todd. Point for you. <laughs> what is the album that is sitting behind Ben Fong Torres at his desk when he first contacts William? Gosh. Yeah, I don't know that. Um, is it an Almond Brothers album? No, it's not. Is it is it... an it is an evening with Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Very random. Hold on, Zach. Okay. Did you buy the Ben Fong Tories book? Uh, no, I did not. I should. Oh, so, I know. So I know. Yesterday, as we're getting ready for this podcast, Zach finds at a bargain bookstore totally randomly, a, a, totally randomly, a book by it was a by Ben Fong Tories. Yeah, by is his autobiography. His autobiography, he, and he didn't buy it, even though we were going to do an almost famous podcast. And he he published it in 1994, by the way, way before the movie was released. Also, there's a book about Jan Winter that was just released in the last year that I, I was reading at a Barnes and Noble a couple days ago. Really, really interesting book. Um, okay, how many albums has Stillwater released? 
Three. Nice job, Terry. That is the correct answer. <laughs> okay. So so here here's another little little bit of trivia. Their first album was called To Begin With. Which is why in the last line of the movie, when he answers why do you what do you love about music? And he starts with to begin with, and they both laugh because it's the title of their first album. So nice. to begin with everything that's why they laugh about it and it can briefly be seen in the opening credits that's a great factoid what is the name of the hotel that they that Stillwater stays at in tempe arizona swingos that's in new york right that's where wait no it, it actually says it on the title when it when it says tempe arizona the name of this hotel is also on that is that, that is that where Eric Stone Street is? Yes. No, okay. that is Swingos, right? Because that's when it's, it's not Swingos. Because that's what, what Penny says. I'll, I'll, we'll go to Swingos, the greatest hotel in America, and I'll introduce you to David Bowie and his manager Dennis, or security guard Dennis. <laughs> and then that's the next scene. Like, and that's that's when the guy freaks out about Bowie. And no, 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 you're you're way you're way ahead. No, yeah, it, that's it's later it's, in the it's movie. a so it's a that hotel that Eric Stone Street is at. Right. I think that's Cleveland. Yeah. Mm, okay. Do you know Terry? I don't know. It's King of the Road Motor Lodge. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. What is the name of the Eric Stone Street character? Oh gosh. Um, oh man, I thought you guys. I thought you guys would get this question. I almost didn't want to ask it. I thought you'd get it. Right oh wait, no, no. Okay, it was. Uh, yeah, he has his name tag on, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm gonna say it's dead? Cameron. It's like, I'm wrong. I, I remember I it was. A, I remember it clicked when I when I watched it, but I forget what it was. <laughs> All right, the answer is Sheldon. Sheldon, that's right. I remember that because I was I I I'd, I was thinking that he Sheldon's the name of a character on a sitcom, and he was on a sitcom. I remember that clicked when I watched it. I completely forgot about it. <laughs> what time is it in Topeka when the T-shirts arrive? <laughs> they prominently show the clock several times. And it's the same time Nine, every time? 9.30. Yes. That's close. Todd, can you get closer? 11.02. The, <laughs> the correct answer is 10.20. And I'll give that to Todd because he's like eight minutes closer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is the name of the radio station in San Diego where Lester Bangs is a guest? Oh. Is it like the Rush or something like that? What's What's the name of the radio station? The abbreviation. Oh the oh gosh, I have no idea. I no clue. Okay, KPRI. This is a disappointment. Okay, what <laughs> What brand of typewriter does William use? Uh oh, something deluxe. Uh, something something deluxe. Something. Uh, no, that's a paper, isn't it? Or no. Galaxia. Galaxis Deluxe something. Galaxis Deluxe. Yeah. Um, it, can you get closer, Terry? No. <laughs> I'm the one that gave him that much. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to start with a G, the second word. I, I'm going to give you both a point for that one because you both got one word in it. The, the correct answer is Smith Corona Galaxis Smith Deluxe. Corona. Yeah. Uh, what brand is William Miller's tape recorder? 
Um, I'm going to go RCA. That is incorrect. Do you have a guess, Todd? <laughs> I have no idea. The correct answer is Sears. How... <laughs> <laughs> how many how many pens drop out of William Miller's bag when he goes to the concert with Penny? Five. Do you have an answer, Todd? Eleven. The answer is two. I'm going to give point to Terry. <laughs> we are tied three three. Two more questions. You're keeping score. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm keeping score. How much in room service bills does Stillwater rack up? Oh, um, it's like $60,000. Todd, what's your guess? I don't know, ten grand. <laughs> That's a stupid guess. It's $600. 600 How can they, how can they the rack up that right. much money? Uh, I get the point. I got the six right. Yeah, that's that's close. I just had a few too many that's zeros closer. on it. <laughs> <laughs> Three too many zeros. Too many zeros. All right, last question. In the Rolling Stone issue that publishes with William's story, what are the other stories in that issue on that cover? I remember Name. their their uh, their article is Stillwater Runs Deep. Right. Oh, yeah. I remember what looking are the... at this. There was something about. Uh... Can you name anything else that was featured in that issue? I'm pretty sure it said at the top Rolling Stone. Yes, that that is correct. <laughs> However, that's not really what I'm asking. I, I think that was a. I also find it weird that it's a newspaper, not a magazine. At that time, I didn't realize that. I can't remember. I remember. I remember looking at it. I, I just don't remember what the words said. Any guesses, Terry? No clue. Okay. Well, the other four uh, subheaders are "Eclipse of the Century," "Is Freedom of the Press Endangered?" do-it-yourself holography and scandal hits record industry. Maybe when uh, that's referring to uh, Dennis Hope admitting that he hit someone in Dearborn, Michigan at one point. Or that Rolling Stone employed a 15-year-old and put him on the road for a summer. <laughs> that could be true, too. <laughs> Can only have one Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> so Terry wins the trivia. I beat very him by $50,000 in that stupid <laughs> question. You're... Terry point. wins four to three. <laughs> that was pretty epic. Oh, all right. I, I think it's about time to uh, to wrap this up, and uh, let's wrap it up with uh, with a quote of the day. Uh, I don't know if there's many quotes that we haven't already mentioned, but uh, but I have one here. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, um, always from this movie, is when uh, when Russell meets the real Topeka people. And they ask him, are you Russell from Stillwater? And his response is, on my better days, yes, I am Russell from Stillwater. And for one last little bit of trivia here, uh, that line was put in the script by, uh, by Cameron Crowe after uh, hearing uh, John Cusack utter a similar line when he was in a diner one time and someone came up to him and asked, hey, are you Lloyd Dobler? And uh, John Cusack's response was, yes, on my better days, I am uh, Lloyd Dobler. So... All comes that's full that's circle. amazing. Comes full circle. All right, uh, Todd. What is your what is your quote? Hey, brother. Um, my quote. <laughs> uh, it's got to be anything by Lester Bang. So one of them I, I always loved hearing him say was, 
Yeah, well, you'll meet them all again in their long, slow journey to the middle. When he's, when he's talking about all the all the people who hate him at school. By the way, that that little that little snippet from from Red Dog there. Hey, brother, that's how Todd and I uh, respond to each other on the phone every time we call each other, like pretty much every time. Red Dog. <laughs> Red Dog. Red Dog. The wheel. By the way, Red Dog was he was. Ainsworth. I, 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 Ainsworth. Hey man. <laughs> in the dire- in the director's cut, he we find out that Red Dog was the uh, was the roadie for the Almond Brothers. Anyways, of okay, of course, Zach, quote uh, comes from Lester Bangs again, who really should be the MVP of this movie, highest war performance. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what we share with someone else when we're uncool. That was the first quote I ever gave for quote of the day on this podcast. It applies so much to this podcast. I, I, I was going to say, that, that really is this podcast, especially this one. <laughs> and this I is think our long, you... slow journey to the middle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and on, our be- on our better days, we, we are the Almost Sideways podcast. So, thank you so much uh, for listening, for enjoying this, uh, this journey uh, through all the ins and outs of one of our favorite movies, Almost Famous. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully you've seen it. Hopefully you haven't gotten this far and have not seen this movie. Um, once again, find us all over the place, rate, review, subscribe. And, um, we'll catch you next time with a, with a more traditional episode where we'll, uh, we'll review some movies and, uh, and do some of our, our normal shenanigans. Uh, until that time, have fun watching movies. Despite your cross behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.